I released the book of basketball in 2009. I swore I was done. What else was there to say? The book was 704 pages long. I figured out the secret of basketball with help from Isaiah Thomas, then used it to rank the top 96 players of all time. I blew up the basketball hall of fame and turned it into a five level Egyptian pyramid. I figured out the 33 greatest what ifs ever. I solved every MVP debate. I made the case for Russell over Wilt. I explained why MJ was the greatest ever. I wrote hundreds of pop culture references, at least 250 inappropriate jokes, and God knows how many footnotes. I even drove to San Diego for the epilogue to spend time with Bill Walton. And when the book reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, that was all I ever wanted. I was done. I swore to myself I would never do a sequel. Well, I kind of lied. So much has changed in the NBA these past 10 years. I couldn't help going back. Who could have seen the three-point boom coming? Curry's Warriors going 73-9, and nine, the Harden trade, the player empowerment era, the process, advanced metrics, the decision, Cleveland winning a title. I repeat, Cleveland winning a title? Well, why write a sequel when I could turn that book into a living, breathing podcast, something that juggled interviews and pyramid podcasts and rewatchable game podcasts about famous games? What's my top 100 now? What's my pyramid What's the new biggest what if of all time? Could the 86 Celtics have handled the 17 Warriors and all those threes? What did I learn from spending so much time over the last years with people like Bill Russell, Magic Johnson, Kevin Durant, Jalen Rose, Isaiah Thomas, and so many others? Think of it as my basketball book coming to life in audio form, reinvented, reincarnated, retooled, recreated for 2019 and beyond. It's the book of basketball 2.0. It's launching on November 6th. Presented by State Farm. See you there. David, the Big Lead website reports that the Sheridan Group is exploring a sale of barstool sports. Oh, man. To a gambling operator, what I want to know is, and I'm picking my words very carefully here, what I want to know is what would post-sale Barstool (laughs) look like? Because we have no experience with this with sports writing at all right now. No, sir. No, sir. um, To take this, I mean, to be be really serious about this... um, It's hard to imagine someone who buying Barstool really understanding the soul of Barstool. I never, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I, I do say, I mean, I do think that they probably have a better chance of, uh, of maintaining their identity no matter who buys them because there's not some like, I don't think anybody could go to barstoolsports.com and be confused that it is in fact a sports blog and nothing else. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody would be under that misapprehension. Um, but yeah, uh, asking Barstool to, Barstool Sports to stick to sports, is that where we're going with this joke? Because that could be one of the most just incredibly hilarious and illuminating moments in, in our modern discourse. No, no pizza reviews, in other words? <laughs> no. No, no random things no, about celebrities? No, like, weeks of Barstool Radio dedicated to the divorces and other personal live misga- goings-on of their staffers and... Videos of their employees coming out of the shower naked and stuff. No, none of that. None of that anymore. We, we're we're just gonna focus on the on the core. The, 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 <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm glad I don't check my mentions. This is gonna be great. Oh man. What if what if the new owner 
pulled a problematic post from three years ago and put it back on the homepage to look like there was fresh problematic content still on Barstool, even after all the uh, writers and editors <laughs> left. What was Can like you that imagine happened? all the Barstool writers quitting in, in solidarity? We're all just going to walk away with from our uh, <laughs> from our jobs. Oh, I'm brother! Dead, man. What is? I just I just want to know what would happen to taunting Barstool gifts. You know, every time somebody publishes something mean about them, you know, you get all the uh, the stoolies and the mentions, right? Doing those doing those uh, uh-huh. Dave Portnoy gifts. What, is, what would that look like <laughs> after the sale? That's what I want to know. Is it, do you have to get a whole new thing, or you just? You just kind of real. I don't even have an out an out to this, by the way. Should we just neither we're, do we're, I? Neither yeah, do we're, I. we're 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 <laughs> we are the uh, you know post apocalyptic barstool of media podcasts. This is the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Media consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. We got lots and lots of stuff to get to today. We'll listen to the cable news sign-off of the week. We'll talk about the art of editing Donald Trump and hit a bunch of 2020 campaign updates, including the candidates battle of the bands. But speaking of 2020, David, we got to start with Beto O'Rourke's decision to quit the presidential campaign. At the beginning of this race, he was at least a very interesting idea of a candidate. He raised a bunch of money. He polled reasonably well. But by Friday in Des Moines, Iowa, he was out. As O'Rourke explained, he had no money and, more importantly, no tangible support. Listen up. Though this is the end of this campaign, we are right in the middle of this fight. I will do everything that I can to support the eventual nominee of this party, with everything that I've got, and I encourage every single one of you to do the same. Sources close to the liberal messiah say he's not going to run for John Cornyn's Senate seat in Texas, which is pretty obvious when he started talking about taking your AR-15 away and taxing churches. I guess, David, the first question is the what happened one. Uh, I really enjoyed Matt Flegenheimer's piece in the New York Times over the weekend, and a point he made, made about Beto was, that really he was trying to be the nice young man to use the old Mike Kinsley term in this race. And he got out nice young manned <laughs> by Pete Buttigieg yeah. who's basically running. Is he not a slightly different version of the campaign Beto wanted to run? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that you said it best in your intro. Um, you know, Beto was a, really interesting idea of a candidate and there wasn't a lot beyond that. Right. I mean, people are fond of saying in this day and age, uh, justifiably that Twitter is not the real world. Beto was kind of the Twitter is not the real world candidate. Right. (laughs) Um, he was very charismatic in his way, but I think he's, he was a sort of like second degree charisma. Like, like if you, you know, if someone was like, you got to check this guy out, if they if they like if they warmed you up to him and then showed you a 10 second YouTube clip while you were like waiting in line for a hamburger, you'd be like, holy shit, this guy's, you know, Bobby Kennedy. Um, but I, I don't it, it, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, I, I just don't feel like there was enough there was enough uh, demand for his candidacy. Uh, and there's probably a lot of reasons for that. Um and I think, I mean, I think that he's, he speaks a lot to the whole field. I mean, we, we have with, 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 you know, the exceptions of a couple, a couple of the front runners, we have a whole lot of people running for the democratic nomination who 
from the beginning have been touted their favorability is in a one-on-one matchup against Trump. But unfortunately, you know, we don't get to just play out that that eventuality for every candidate. Only one person gets to go head to head. And um, getting there is not as easy as, you know, uh, having a viral video or even getting a, you know, Vanity Fair cover shoot or an HBO documentary. There's there's, you know, there's the actual campaigning and organizing and uh, and, you know, platforming. To to just just go back a second to to him being the sort of Twitter's idea of a candidate. It's funny with Beto because it was actually kind of old media in a way. Remember, it was Oprah interviewing him after yeah. the Ted Cruz thing and kind of encouraging Bradley Cooper. I was reminded in Flegenheimer's New York Times piece encouraged Beto to run for president. Uh, LeBron was wearing the Beto hat during a Senate race with Ted Cruz there. Um you know, there is a sort of, there's this sense with, with Beto, I think that something happened between that and his actual candidacy. The big mm. thing, of course, being the Vanity Fair profile, um, which, you know, I almost now, and we, we milk this for as much merriment as anybody, but now that I go back and kind of look at it, I almost wonder if if Beto got a little bit of a raw deal, the quote, of course, that everybody replayed forever was, man, I'm just born to be in it. Mm-hmm. This seems like a bona fide Kinsley gaffe, not the fake kind, but the real kind, because he was just saying what every presidential candidate thinks. Every single candidate in this race thinks they were born to run for president. Yes. You're just not allowed to say it. And Beto said it. And I just think it like it kind of, you know, that man at the front of it, of course, made him sound like the ultimate dude bro, which was another big problem with this campaign. But I look back at that and I'm like, that doesn't seem disqualifying to me. Like, I'm pretty sure Elizabeth Warren thinks she was born to run for president. I'm pretty sure Andrew Yang thinks that. I think even like John Delaney thinks that. But he just came out and said it. And for whatever reason, that just hung around his neck yeah. forever. It's funny. This is that exact argument or both halves of it. Uh, I saw in a little uh, tweet and, and tweet response today um, from uh, Blake Hounshall at, uh, from Politico, I believe. He said, his, the quote was, the media is a cruel mistress, blew up Beto beyond all hope for hope of meeting its our expectations, then merc- mercilessly mocked him as he fell. And then there was a response from none other than Britt Hume, who said, the problem was not our expectations, it was his. The ones that allowed him to imagine he was presidential material in the first place, um, which I, and I think the truth, uh, I think both halves of that uh, are, are slightly true, and, and I do I think the ultimate truth is probably probably somewhere in between. I mean, I think that the I think that you're right that all candidates think they were born, they, I mean that they were made for it, and and I think that the media did the old the, the you know the legacy media did do play a, a a significant role in sort of hyping him up. I don't think that. 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we would have had any idea who Beto O'Rourke was outside of a, you know, name in the, in the, in the closing paragraph of a, of a newspaper story. Right. I mean, it was, it was significant that he did as well as he did in Texas, but that's a Texas politics issue. And we're looking for heroes, right? I mean, especially in social media era, it's easy to identify them and to blow them up and to make them national names. But there's some degree to which actually coming up, you know, kind of earning your stripes and coming up through the political machines is a, is a valuable thing, not just for becoming part of the Borg or whatever within the Democratic Party, but like, or the Republican Party for that matter, but 
for just sort of figuring out if you have what it takes every step along the way. And I think that in some ways he might have just had the perfect situation in Texas. Um, and he still may be a force in Texas politics, although there's a case to be made that he sort of squandered that along the way running for president as well. Um, but but I, but I think that it's, uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't just him, right? I mean, you know, there, there was a period where I felt like every time I turned on the TV, it was like, there, there was like a, it felt like there was a national call to get Stacey Abrams in the presidential, in the, mm-hmm. in the primary, right? No, I mean, I don't think anybody's, Stacey Abrams is fantastic. I, I don't think anybody is like, looks at the debate stage and thinks only, if only Stacey Abrams were up there. Um, you know, Andrew Gillum was the, was the sort of third person, the third celebrity back during that, during that, uh, congressional race I mean, period. And, and, uh, and you know he's actually come up recently, I think, in in v, what he supposedly was having back channel communications with Warren or somebody. But um, but again, like you know, having being an, being almost winning, um, almost winning a race at that at a point in time when the when when the country is just so so energized against the president or half of it is, uh, you know, it's it, it's 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 a, it's something. It's not nothing, but the idea that that means that you know destiny is on your side i think it takes you know that that's not going to be true for everybody although i will say that what obama and trump both proved trump's obviously more so than obama is that destiny is on your side is a compelling political argument right i mean it's like some everybody out there is is hope is 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 keeping is crossing their fingers hoping that they are that that candidate of the moment and i think that's what beto's case was largely but you know for everybody can't be that candidate well, and, and to just go to Obama, I mean, forget even destiny, just go to Obama's political experience. Obama got elected to the Senate in, or started in the Senate in 2005. He had a cup of coffee, and then he almost immediately starts running against Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination. Mm-hmm. Beto had been a three-term congressman. And, you know, if if he had won that, I guess it, it gets weird because people say, well, he didn't even win the Texas Senate race. First of all, winning a Senate race in Texas seems like, you know, a little harder than winning a Senate race in Massachusetts mm-hmm. or Vermont or wherever. So it's like as close as he got in Texas seems like the political equivalent of actually winning in a blue state. But also if he if he'd won that race and then, you know, basically unpacked his, you know, belongings in the Senate office and then started running for president, he would have had a more compelling case. I don't I don't quite understand that. And it strikes me as like, you know, he, you know, especially compared to Trump, he had enough experience. It was just something about the way he run. A couple of theories here for you. Nate Silver says another fairly obvious lesson. Strike while the iron is hot. If Beto immediately announces a run in November, December to capitalize on Democrats' happy feelings about the 2018 midterms, maybe things would have unfolded differently. You remember he had that long period of indecision where he was sort of mm-hmm. thinking about it publicly. Nick Field uh, our pal says tweets the mo- the post election medium posts were the turning point for Beto. He came off as authentically indecisive, self centered, and soft. Campaign writers and pundits read those stories yep. and ran their analysis through that prism. Voters saw him the same way. His MRI of the soul came back wanting. And that was another thing I think that we should talk about, which is what how much of authentic Beto did we see in this presidential campaign? Cause I guarantee if you went to him and said, if you reran this, what would you do differently? I think he thinks he probably got talked out of being his, his yeah. authentic Beto. Don't you remember when he had to stop standing on the countertops 
And, you know, he would make comments, the Vanity Fair thing. He was almost walking back immediately afterward. There was the countertops. He made a comment about his wife raising the kids. That was, that was then he was in, he was almost defensive the whole time instead of what powered him in Texas, which was this whole, I don't care, man. I'm just going for it. I'm making no apologies for being a progressive. I'm making no apologies for going to the reddest counties in Texas. I'm going for it. He never seemed to be fully embracing his betterness in the same way when he was running for president. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, and he wouldn't be the first candidate. I mean, he would he would probably be the last in the line of potentially every candidate whose uh, personal instincts were like entirely tempered or largely tempered by the advisors and, and other staffers they have around them. Trump might be the only exception in political history. Um, uh, yeah, he obviously was not the same person that he, that he had been. Although, you know, I think that when he first announced his candidacy, we talked on this show about how there was an incredible lack of substance there, and it was up to him to sort of fill in the blanks. I thought he was really compelling in his announcement speech, and um, and I didn't mind the table standing, although I think it was more of a, th- a case where, I think it, I think that was, a like, weirdly, I think that was just a huge misread. I think that it was, it was an easy punchline, but I don't think there were a lot of people, I don't think that was a game changer, and I think maybe having that easy speech you know, SNL caricature might have done his candidacy some good, you know. Um, but, but you know, he did. They, you know, he he did kind of turn down the volume on being Beto, and by the, but but he didn't turn up the volume on anything platform related, or at least nothing to make him stand out until it was so far gone that he started, you know, taking people's guns back. And um, there were the parts of it were were politically and morally reaffirming. You know, I mean, some of some of the, the the talk about gun rights and some of and a lot of the talk about the you know Trump's racism. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of that 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 I thought. I mean, that there 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 is a definitely a, a bravery to it. Um, we all remember when he turned to the press pool. He was like, "Why do you guys keep answering me questions? You know the answer to." And started like dropping f bombs or whatever he was doing. But the but you know it did seem like it was a little, like that was a little bit of a last gasp, you know, and it made it hard to countenance even the gun control discussion, which, which, you know, seemed to be rather, uh, sincere, but it was hard to kind of countenance that as anything other than just like trying to stand out in the crowd. And well, it was, I will, in, in fairness to him, that was right after the shooting in El Paso. No, it was no, absolutely. I, and I think that's what I'm saying. I think it was, I think, I think there was sincerity behind it. Um, but it did seem like he was just sort of his best moments seemed a little bit deliberate. You know, he was like trying to he he was just trying to get attention. And he was trying to go viral, he, wasn't he? Because that's yeah, that think, seemed like the lesson right. he learned from the Senate race, right? If I go viral, then then that's when everybody starts paying attention to me. And some yeah, of that and, did feel pretty forced. Yeah, and I think that you know, uh as 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 significant and as, as sincere and as important as some of those issues and some of those points of view are, uh, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, I mean, I think that eventually that, that that's what he's going to be, or that's what he came to characterize the entire campaign now, not the rest of his platform, which was presumably very, um, you know, well-considered and reasonable. But like, as soon as he dropped out, I saw, you know, Republicans tweeting out just a list of his greatest hits, including all that stuff I just mentioned as sort of, uh, you know, evidence A, B, and C, and D about what you know why the Democratic Party is going to fail, right? I mean, that, that's and, and I think that 
that writ large over the course of the rest of the campaign probably would have done more damage to the whole party and certainly to him than than him staying in the race and trying to continually make you know get someone to pay attention to him it's funny because beto has qualities that i think we could find pretty much a hundred percent agreement among democrats that they want in this nominee one is authenticity a loaded word i know but this sort of mm-hmm. idea that you you are you are you believe what you're saying so much that you can yeah. say it eloquently and you're not apologizing for it uh number two use of social media Remember, this was a really inviting part of the idea of Beto. Trump is, you know, bombing everybody on Twitter and and everything. But here's a guy who knows how to use the tools of 2019 to officially to kind of fight back. That was part of it. And then I think just the kind of connection to people, you know, what was so appealing in Texas when he was going and visiting all those dark red counties was. I'm just going to go shake as many hands as I possibly can. You know, we've seen that in Warren, right? That's that's the Warren selfie line, essentially. I'm going to take mm-hmm. selfies with everybody here. Um, that was part of Beto, too. So I think, you know, though his candidacy is done, and I don't think that campaign will be much remembered unless we, you know, get some weird game change style book that'll have, you know, a couple of pages about it at the beginning. I think those qualities are basically what a Democrat wants in a candidate right now. And it'll be up to whoever wins the nomination to try to channel them as best as they can. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the, the, it'll be, I mean, I think in some sense the postmortem will be interesting. Um, you know, he had a lot of kind of interesting, big name people helping out with this campaign in the early going, but it's, it's a very, it's, a, the field is so big that you can't just, you know, there's very few kingmakers back there in the back rooms, you know? And, and, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that you're right about the authenticity. I think that there's a, there's a huge place for someone like Beto in our contemporary politics. Um, but you know, I just to bring it back around. I think when you, when you take your shot and and this was a shot, right? I mean, this was like, nobody would have thought it doesn't matter if he's born for this. He might very well be or made for it. Sorry. He might very well be made for it. Um, that doesn't mean he was made for 2019 or 2020. And you know, he, he shot his shot and, and it, it didn't, it didn't hit. I mean, it didn't, it didn't land. So uh, maybe next time, maybe, maybe whatever the next thing down the road is for him. What does he do? And speaking of that, you know, because you see, I mean, it's funny because he has this he has this lane for him where he can just be like fire up the crowd guy, you know, sort of go around, be your kind of liberal, liberal id speaker that can speak at college campuses and democratic events and campaign for people the rest of his life. But do you think he has like a substantial act ahead of him? I really don't know. I mean, you would know the answer to Texas politics better than I do, because I think that the answer is probably, I mean, you're right. There's, there's two, there's two different things he could do. I think if, if his, if his goal is really to, to be a politician in the best sense of the word, I think it's, I think it's sort of back to, back to the basics, right? I mean, he, he needs to work his way back up, um, from Texas and try to turn, try to flip the state, whether it's, you know, him running or him contributing or whatever else. I mean, there's certainly a, a national spot for him he can you know go work for msnbc or cnn or something next week mm. um what about what about heading the dnc it doesn't isn't he the kind of guy like he can go on television every week 
He can raise money. He can be tireless party builder guy. Isn't that kind of a job for him under a Democratic president or maybe not under a Democratic president? Just to play devil's advocate, wouldn't you want somebody for that job that didn't run out of money in October of 2019? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think you're right. I think that there's a national, I think that, I think that that's the right way. I think that in in a lot of weird ways, this is the, I mean, this, this campaign for the, for the nomination is, I mean, there, there are a lot of DNC chairs in the running over there, right? I mean, you could, you could make that. Yeah, Buttigieg too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And who's, who's making a, a ton of money. Um, But you could pencil, you could pencil half those candidates into that job. I mean, you could, you could imagine somebody in that position, um, I I don't think that that would be a terrible a terrible idea for Beto, although, you know, I there I think there might be I think that there might be better use. I think he might find himself more useful in other positions. You know, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly possible though. I could also see Beto as an extremely dreamy Secretary of the Interior, wearing mm-hmm. kind of a Robert Redford at Sundance outfit. You know, with a kind of denim shirt, rolled up yeah. sleeves, standing in front of an endangered owl habitat. <laughs> and just just selling it, you know, and just and absolutely believing it, you know, just just all in under a Democratic administration. I don't know if that's big enough for him, though. David, I'd yeah. like to go ahead and uh, if we could rank disastrous presidential campaign journalism for a second. <laughs> oh, God. Number three, Gary Hart inviting reporters to follow him around and investigate his personal life. <laughs> I know that's kind yeah. of disputed, but probably still belongs uh-huh. in the list. Number two, Beto Vanity Fair profile. Number one, let Detroit go bankrupt by Mitt Romney. Oh my that's, god! That's my uh, that's my ranking. All right, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they are always gratefully received. Beto's out of the race, David, which means Twitter's got Beto jokes. All Beto's are off. Beto late than never. And I was I was reading those. I was remembering we did all these months ago. Yes. And and I don't think anyone has beaten Mo Beto Blues. <laughs> Do you just show me? If anybody's beaten that, show me. Also, um, Beto Luck next time. We would also accept. Thanks anyway to Tom Kerstetter for that. Also enjoyed this Beto bit from Twitter. My Chemical Romance and Rage Against the Machine are both getting back together. Clearly, Beto did what he set out to accomplish. Thanks to <laughs> Alex Hungerford for that. We talked last week about Twitter banning political ads. Well, Ted Cruz came out and tweeted that CEO Jack Dorsey was taking the wrong approach. Now, nobody seemed to care about Ted Cruz's tweet. So Cruz went into conspiracy mode. He tweeted, hmm, only 169 retweets. It's almost like the 3.4 million people who chose to follow this account never saw this particular tweet, dot, dot, dot. Wonder why. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write that this was Ted Cruz's please clap moment. <laughs> Thanks to Brian Gluck for that. And finally, David, did you see the picture of Cleveland Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield after yesterday's loss to the Broncos looking yeah. despondent in a trench coat in 1980s cop show mustache? It launched the Baker Mayfield looks like hashtag. So let me give you a few of those. Baker Mayfield looks like the actor that would play either John Wilkes Booth or Edgar Allan Poe in a reenactment scene for a History Channel documentary. (laughs) Baker Mayfield looks like Chris Hansen just asked him to take a seat. Uh... Baker Mayfield looks like Gardner Minshew, who looks like Baker Mayfield. (laughs) 
Baker Mayfield looks like Sean Penn's stunt double from the Falcon and the Snowman. You <laughs> must see that movie to appreciate how real that is. Baker Mayfield looks like he just ran down to the corner for a pack of smokes, but didn't grab his wallet. <laughs> and finally, this from ESPN's Kevin Van Valkenburg. Baker Mayfield looks like he was cast in the newest David Simon project, Ink Stained, an HBO series about the 1970s newsroom with the Toledo Blade, where he'll play the Metro reporter who gets an anonymous tip that's about to change everything. <laughs> Thanks to B-Train for that one. If you dragged Baker Mayfield for his quarterbacking and then dragged him for his mustache, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Before we hit the notebook dump, David, let us take a moment for a quick break. For over 115 years, Oris has been making purely mechanical watches in Holstein, Switzerland. Staying true to a rich heritage, Oris is one of the few Swiss watch companies to remain independently owned and operated. Because of this independence, Oris has the freedom to follow its own path. They're focused on bringing change for the better, which means making choices that are ecologically, socially, and financially responsible. That includes ocean conservation and recycled plastic partnerships. Of course, that's along with Oris's century-long and change commitment to making inventive, high-functioning, Swiss-made watches that serve a real purpose and at prices that make sense. The best possible watch for the money. Comprised of four worlds, diving, aviation, motorsport, and culture, Oris watches are made for everyday wear. Oris is the longtime favorite of people who know watches because of what they represent. It's always a great time to buy a new watch, but the holiday season is quite possibly the most perfect opportunity to gift someone with a suave new watch. Check out oris.ch slash pressbox to find the Oris watch that matches your style. That's oris.ch slash pressbox. All right, David, in the notebook dump, I want to set you up with the cable news sign-off of the week. This comes to us from Tate Frazier. Ringer alum Tate Frazier. It's from the Jesse Waters Fox News TV program. And when it's Jesse Waters, man, you know that there is going to be an absolute meticulous vetting of the guests. <laughs> Here he was talking to Mike Ritland, who, according to his website, is a former Navy SEAL who served in Iraq and trained dogs for use in military action. That is all very relevant to the news. But what about the way Ritland ends this interview? For your service. I appreciate it. Absolutely. If, if I could, could I throw a PSA out real quick? Real quick. Uh, just the the remarkable nature of these dogs and, and them being highlighted in the news creates a, a huge demand by people that, that frankly shouldn't have them. If uh, if you see the the coverage and you decide I want one of these dogs, either buy a finished trained, uh, you know, fully trained and, and finished dog from a professional, uh, or just just don't get one at all. That um, and Epstein didn't kill himself. <laughs> Wow. What was our first, what was the first sort of uh-oh moment there when it was like, can I throw out a PSA? That's what I thought you were going to, I haven't even heard that before. That, I thought That's what I thought the, the gag was. And that other one just came out of left field. That's fantastic <laughs> comedic work there. If you're on a national TV show doing an interview, should you be allowed to just freelance like a message at the end of your interview? Is there not like a seven second delay or is they, that person just like... <laughs> That person not on duty during the waters hour or whatever it's called. I feel like we've seen phony cable news interviews before where somebody somehow gets past the censors and just does something completely ridiculous. But yeah, like on live TV during a tragedy or something, you know, when like there when there's some sort of interest, national interest in not running a delay. But that just seemed bizarre. Right. But this is like a different category, right, where you give a totally normal interview 
Like this, this guy really yeah. does train dogs, but then yeah. you just tack on just something really wild right at the end. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it'd be like invite. I mean, but yeah, you're right. It'd be like, like inviting like the former chair of the DNC or something on just, and you're not really familiar with them, but like, it, it looks like a, the, the resume adds up and then he just yells Baba Booey as they go off the air or something. <laughs> well, it's like if, you know, if, uh, outside the lines, were still around in daily form. And Jeremy Schapp was, you know, having you on about wrestlers and unions or death or whatever. And at the end, you're just like, you know, JFK Jr. is still alive and living on an island and, uh, you know, somewhere. Yeah. I mean, you're just like, what? Just gave a totally yeah. normal interview. That is wild. On the subject, David, of editing Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. There was a big New Yorker piece out by Peter Osnos, who I know you know or or worked in the, in the sphere of. Yes. Uh, Peter Osnos, a legendary reporter first of all and then book editor he went to random house in 1984 and in this piece he writes that Cy newhouse who owned random house told osnos he really wanted to do a book with a certain multimillionaire named donald trump uh so this was a normal donald trump was was sort of still a going still a growing concern in american life at this point 1984 the way they pitched him a book was and and just stop me here when this starts to go out of bounds of normal celebrity book publishing. Osnos and Newhouse went to Trump's office and brought along a proposed book cover. So the way to get the celebrity to do it was mm -hmm. to mock up a fake book cover with the celebrity's picture on it. Yeah. Osnos writes, Trump liked the cover, but said his name should be larger. Yeah. Is that normally what happened? Don't you just give the celebrity a bunch of money and say, let's do the book. Do you have <laughs> to like, show the celebrity like a proof of concept kind of thing I, like that listen, a big face i i know that there's a, a lot of some 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 uh percentage of our listenership that thinks i'm trying to talk myself into trump so please don't read this that way but i can definitely appreciate a man who likes to have who likes to you know hold an actual book or book shaped thing in his hands to to, to be won over about the prospect um no i, th I think that's pretty i think it's pretty straightforward it's just like um you know you could you try to you, you when when people are recruiting uh, basketball free agents they put together fake highlight reels of their time with the new team you know it's when they <laughs> I'm sure there I'm sure I'm sure someone has been talked into doing a movie before by seeing like the giant broadside poster or the billboard that they're gonna put up on Hollywood Boulevard um, yeah I, I, I can imagine that happening although as someone who has designed his fair share of book covers um, make the author's name bigger is one of those things that you hear over and over and over again often from the author and. Uh, it sort of makes you want to pull your hair out. So this is like Trump, if he were a basketball free agent, walking into the arena of the team that's courting him, and the team has like their announcer there. Exactly. And like, now playing for the Golden State Warriors? Yeah, no, I got that. By the way, awesomely 80s touch in this article is Trump sitting down with the head of Walden Books, which yeah. is then the biggest oh, bookstore chain fine. in the country. Yeah, those were the days. Yeah. Uh, Osnos continues that at a December 1987 book party, Quote, I found myself shaking hands with these are Trump friends with Mike Tyson, Barbara Walters, Barry Diller and Norman Mailer, who had been surprisingly a close friend of Roy Cohn. Wow. So Norman Mailer came to the book party for Trump's The Art of the Deal. Uh, Joni Evans, who ran Random House, Osnos writes, told me that Trump called her at home a few days before Christmas to say he wanted a thousand copies of his book delivered to Aspen for an upcoming ski vacation. Donald, it's Christmas, Evan said. All the warehouses are closed. Figure it out, was Trump's command. He offered the use of his plane. 
And Random House did indeed deliver 1,000 copies of Trump's book to him over his ski holiday. Osnos and Trump decided to do a sequel to the book, which is a huge bestseller, sold a million copies in hardcover. The sequel was called Surviving at the Top. And David, this is an, I just gave you an awesomely 80s detail. Here's an awesomely 80s, 90s detail. When Trump spoke at a booksellers convention ahead of Surviving at the Top coming out, he followed by one day a random house party for Gene M. All, author of Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh my God. So that was, that was, that was a bestseller list at the time. The day after Trump's triumphant bookseller convention speech, Osnos, quote, picked up a copy of the Wall Street Journal, which featured a front page story about Trump's finances. To summarize, they were a mess. He was billions of dollars in debt. So Random House has signed up another I Am the Smartest Man in the Universe book by Donald Trump. And the day after Trump introduces this book to booksellers, the Wall Street Journal reports that Trump is not the smartest man in the universe. <laughs> uh, the CEO, CEO of Random House tells Osnos, get this book out fast. He is a wasting asset. Uh, the book still sold reasonably well. The title was changed from Surviving at the Top to The Art of Survival for paperback because Donald Trump was no longer at the top. And I did want to run this by you, David, just in terms of how booksellers and book publishers, I should say, think about the people they work with. Okay. Peter Osnos writes, I am often asked if I regret having been the editor of the book that made Trump a national figure? The answer is no. I was trained in journalism, and Trump was a terrific story. I was tasked by Cy Newhouse to manage him on that first book. On the second book, I was working with a successful repeat author. So essentially what he's saying is, I don't regret making Donald Trump into this giant national figure because there were books to be sold. <laughs> is, that, is that pretty much it? And And I did what, as a book publishing person my job is which is to sell books by a famous person yeah i mean it's uh yeah i mean i don't i don't i find it hard to get too up in arms about this i mean first of all it's a really wild counterfactual right i mean this is it's this is, there was nothing in these books that would lead one to think that we were going to end up with the presidency that we have now and even if so there's nothing in the books that uh, is inherently problematic in that way, right? Or, 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 and even if there were, would would you, should you have been expected to be that cognizant of that at the time? I mean, it's 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 all sort of bizarre. I mean, listen, uh, full disclosure. I mean, I I worked for a place for a long time where a very popular right wing talking head basically kept the lights turn, kept the lights on, so that the the rest of the stuff we published could continue being published, um, and. You know, you sort of have to make your bones about that or whatever. But but I think there would have been I think it would have been a different story if the stuff we were publishing was inherently problematic. And it, it wasn't. I mean, it was just if if the byline is problematic, I guess that's something you got to work with your therapist or your, you know, higher <laughs> being about. But uh, I can't. I, Fortunately, I don't, book publishing pays so well that you have plenty of money. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, yeah exactly. Exactly. No, I just don't think that. The, the, I mean, listen. It would have been if you want to if you want to take exception to publishing Trump's campaign book. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that at all, but but fine. I mean, you can make that co you can make a coherent argument if you want to go back in time and you know kill the art of the deal in the crib. I mean, that seems a little bit unnecessary. So <laughs> it's kind of the kind of the alternate kill Hitler scenario. You're yeah, just exactly. snuffing out Trump's book deal. <laughs> yeah. No, I think no, I think that's right. I mean, I to sort of to to, to sort of say like you published Trump's book, therefore you're responsible for the Muslim ban. That 
that seems like a rickety thing. Though, by the way, Tony Schwartz, who wrote The Art of the Deal, has been basically apologizing in serial fashion for the last couple of years for yeah, doing that. And he's and he's he's I'm sure, you know, helped his own personal brand by doing that. I mean, no, I mean, that's and that's totally fine. But I mean, what I what I was just saying is that I think it when we when we hear book publishers, there's this thing of that's slightly different, I think, from journalism, though, though journalism certainly guilty of this is what's important is that it will sell books. Right. Like the, what we're evaluating here, unless it's like, you know, a, a, a murderous dictator. What we're what we're evaluating here is not is Trump a genuine business genius The what we're evaluating is will a book positing that Trump is a genuine business genius sell a lot of books and sell a lot of copies. And that that is actually the question. And I don't know that anybody really got much past that, you know, in terms of whether it was the ghost ghostwriter or the publisher or anything else like that. Anyway, it's always just fascinating to me. Campaign 2020 updates, David. I want to start to you with what I'm going to call the panic of the moderates. Ooh, and we've, right. we've been we've been heading toward this ever since Biden started stumbling around and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were near the top of the polls. There was going to be a panic among Democratic moderates who didn't like the ideas that Warren and Bernie have, didn't think those ideas can win or both. And today's occasion for it is new polls from The New York Times and Siena College which show that Donald Trump, despite being incredibly unpopular, is not that far off in the key states Democrats need to win the election. Uh, Joe Biden, even with Donald Trump in Michigan, Bernie Sanders plus only plus two over Trump in Michigan, Elizabeth Warren minus six against Trump in Michigan. Biden has narrow leads over Trump in, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Warren is only even with Trump in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Sanders plus one plus two. So essentially, and then Trump, you know, doing quite well in other swing states like Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. And I think the point here is that, wait a minute, (laughs) do the Democrats really have a candidate who is going to beat Donald Trump? I'll take you to Jonathan Chait's piece in New York Magazine today. He says, there are many reasons the party's mainstream has failed to exert itself. Biden's name recognition and association with the popular Obama administration has blotted out alternatives And the sheer number of center-left candidates has made it hard for any non-Biden to gain traction. Candidates with strong profiles like Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar have struggled to gain attention. And proven politicians like Michael Bennett and Steve Bullock have failed to even qualify for the debates, dot, dot, dot. The only avenue that has seemed open for a candidate to break into the top has been to excite activists who are demanding positions far to the left of the median voter. So what Chade is there laying out is, on the one hand... There are structural problems for a moderate candidate to go and sort of challenge Biden for the nomination along with Warren and Sanders. But the second way is the only way you get attention in this Democratic field is by being more liberal. So there's this what he's saying is a perverse incentive to be more liberal, which is push more liberal candidates to the top. What do you think of that? I mean, I think that's definitely true. uh, There's. I mean, this isn't. I, mean, I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of issues that are getting brought brought up in the debates and on the campaign trail that are um, rather small bore in comparison to at least you know primary races in, in cycles past. Um, things that are definitely uh, you know direct kind of um, 
direct pleas sort of to the to the very the very most the most liberal uh parts of the party um and certainly some of the candidates are doing that themselves to try to make some noise because they know they can get a little static get a little attention get a little pushback that way and we talked about that a little bit with Beto and some of his more distinct stances um and I think that in the at the end of the day I mean I, listen I, I think that there's a lot of ways in which it's going to be a real net negative for the party um but without getting going into too much detail on that side, I think I mean I, I think that that's right. I think that I mean, listen, I mean Michael Bennett and Steve Bullock and the you know the people like that. I mean they they certainly got attention. I don't I think I don't think you can say they didn't get any attention. I just don't think there's any appetite for that. I think that you know tacking to the right was a was uh, completely impossible. But it is sort of the inverse of what's going on now. But I think more more than anything, what we're seeing is, you know. Biden is taking up so much of the oxygen in the middle. Um, mm -hmm. And also, I mean, some, so some of this is really practical, I guess is what I'm saying. But Biden's taking up so much of the oxygen in the middle. Sanders and Warren are taking so much oxygen on the left. And to impede, but, but I think Biden's, Biden's taking up more, I mean, has more gravity, I think, sort of comparatively in terms of just like what the platform positions, what he stands for, institutional, whatever. And I think when people when people kind of snipe at Warren or snipe at, or at Sanders to try to differentiate themselves, they get stuck in, they get sucked into this, this, you know, middle of the road Biden vortex. And he kind of, and they just kind of disappear into his shadow a little bit. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I think, I think that Chade's broader point is right. I mean, I think it's, it's, but I think the, the, the even more broad point is that it's really hard to stand out in a field of 10 or 15 people. And, um, and, you know, with the with the party the way that it is, and especially with the base, the active base the way that it is, there's only certain ways you can get attention at all. Semi-related to that point is Pete Buttigieg, who has put himself forward as kind of like, I'm the moderate who's not Joe Biden, yeah. who's much younger and has different ideas, said on Showtime's The Circus that he thought this was a two-person race now for the Democratic nomination. Let's listen to that. I think this is getting to be a two-way. It's early to say it. I'm not saying it is a two-way, but I think... But you see that. Um, you see it's coming into focus, you and Warren. Yeah, and certainly a world where we're getting somewhere is that world, where it's coming down to the two of us. Obviously, there's a lot of candidates and a lot of things can happen, but I think that as that happens, the contrasts become clear. Look, the, the contrasts are real. Uh, they're substantive, respectful policy contrasts, but they're real. First of all, it's interesting you say that, right? So you accept the notion right now that it's kind of Warren against the field, really. Someone's trying to become the, the, the alternative to yeah. Warren right now, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's shaping up that way. And so the former vice president of the United States is like, in your mind at this point, already like gone? I would say this. Either he is the unstoppable front runner and we can all go home, or he's not. Right. And anybody who's in this race uh, is here on the assumption that, that he's not. Buttigieg has been trying to walk back the <laughs> it's down to me and Warren thing basically since he said it. Way too interesting, by the way. To say publicly during a presidential campaign, whether you believe it or not, yes, that's another that's another thing that whoever believes that you can't actually say that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the weirdest thing is that when I listened to the clip uh, after reading about the clip, I was uh, sort of well, underwhelmed isn't the right word, but I sort of I can sympathize with his reasoning, right? I mean, it, to, if I, I actually think that there's some validity, especially from where he's coming from, to say like the only way forward is to, I mean, the on, the only path forward is to hypothetically write off Joe Biden, you know, I mean, just like get him out of the way. Um, mm -hmm. And then at that point, I mean, listen, 
this is one of those things that you said it's too interesting. I don't know that it's too honest to say. I mean, maybe he's being personally honest. I think if you pulled a lot of political reporters uh, anonymously, they'd probably get to exactly the same endpoint that he reached in that interview. Um, I, I don't I don't think it's that controversial. It's the sort of hutzpah that I guess it's that's controversial. And I will say that going back to the previous conversation, the interesting thing that Buttigieg has done, like is is what you said it is he's carved out the space as the moderate who's not Biden. And I think that contra a lot of the other people running the race who are more moderate, Kamala Harris, who I know we're going to talk about, maybe fits this mold. More moderate candidates who are trying to paint themselves as more progressive than they are. He's sort of said. No, 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 I'm a moderate candidate. Like you, and, and, if you're, and if you're having any trepidation about Joe Biden, but you like his sort of general stance, I'm your guy. Um, but yeah, I think, it's, I think that you know, people are going to always take issue with any candidate that, that seems to be self-assured or overconfident or whatever you want to say. I mean, the I'm made for this, you know, Beto's thing was, was you know, example 1A. Uh, and I think that, you know, this will, it'll be interesting to see how, how Buttigieg sort of comes out of this. If I were him, I wouldn't back down. Or I mean, maybe I would try to just explain it once and, and try to move on. But um, oh yeah, because but, it's so it's so dumb. I mean, this is another one where it's like, what it's you're 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 spot on by comparing it to Beto. What what is what are all presidential candidates doing at all times? They're either trying to establish themselves as the front runner, or they're trying to establish themselves as the single alternative to the front runner. Those are yeah. the two lanes. That's what everybody in this race is trying to do. And Pete Buttigieg just said it out loud. He's saying, "War." I think Warren is a front runner, and I think I am essentially the alternative to Warren. Yeah, that's what everybody's trying to do. But then we have to act like we get the vapors when he's, "Oh, oh, oh, oh," you know, who does he think he is? Yeah, exactly. Like, what would you have him say? He's like, "Well, here, here's the way I see this shaking out." I say, "We're on, we're all on the way to the next debate, and all the other candidates get trapped in an ice storm, and they can't make the stage, and then I just win by default." Or I mean, or something. You know, like there's not, there's not. If you don't see yourself winning, then what are you doing? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Speaking of Kamala Harris, yesterday, the California senator qualified for the December debate. That's pretty much the end of the good news because her campaign has been coming apart lately, been laying off staffers, uh, low on cash. She has essentially ended her campaign in New Hampshire. Politico's Trent Spiner no relation, I don't think, to the guy who plays Data on Star Trek, <laughs> went looking in the various Harris campaign offices in New Hampshire and comes up with this, quote, in Keene, the office in a storefront on Main Street was dark. Chairs were folded up and a bag of Cheetos and Halloween candy sat on one of the number of empty tables at the front of the office. Uh, Harris apparently going to preserve her South Carolina campaign machinery, and she's going all in to try to show well in Iowa, including spending Thanksgiving in there. That's always the, that's always the final, I'm going to spend the holiday here. That's how, that's how committed I am. Uh, this is another, what happened, David campaign pulled well, uh, at the beginning of the summer, 20,000 people showed up for her announcement in Oakland. And now she's sort of in this kind of, you know, she's certainly, she's certainly in the zone where, professional respected political reporters aren't paying a ton of attention to her or treating her a little bit like Beto where they're just like this campaign doesn't have its act together. What do you make of what's happened to Kamala Harris? That night, I don't know. I think it was the first time that Maya Rudolph played, portrayed her on, on Saturday night live when they were doing the, the debate bit and Kate McKinnon was playing Elizabeth Warren and, and side by side, first of all, Maya Rudolph did the most Spot, like pitch perfect but scathing 
impression of Kamala Harris as just sort of like the seductive mom, basically. And it was, you know, it's like a like a, a brandy in one hand and a cigarette in the other. And and it was just like it was <laughs> That sounds like every Maya Rudolph character. Exactly. Like, it was. But it was but it but it felt but it just felt so spot on and and yet it wasn't there was no like there was no backbone of like what makes her a great person or a great candidate. There was there 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 was no like affirmation inherent in it. But it was just so it was just so perfect after you know we had kind of seen her kind of chuckling at herself in, in the in the debates and and sort of seemingly missing the point a couple of times and and uh, and but but that plays side by side with Kate McKinnon who was doing a an immaculate Elizabeth Warren impression but the sort of impression that makes you like Elizabeth Warren more it's sort of hard to say but like just putting those two. It, putting those two impressions side by side, it was just like, oh Jesus! Like one of these people could be president, and the other. I mean, if you had never seen the campaign, if you never seen the real people, you would say one of these people could be president, and one of these people is a joke, right? And mm-hmm. and the the impressions that they the, uh, that you know that they're going to do of candidates on SNL are not like literally meaningful in any sort of way. I mean, like, they they certainly sh- could be. I mean, Sarah Palin uh, would probably like to have a word, but like, but. I think that that kind of speaks to something broader, which is that, you know, w- what we were all sort of reading, what we the subtext that we were seeing out of Kamala Harris was, with the exception of the first debate, it just didn't seem like a particularly meaty, particularly, you know, well-considered campaign. And I think it's, so there's some, there's some of the better work stuff in there too, where it's just like, if you're running, um, I mean, despite, like I said, despite Obama, despite Trump, if you're running a sort of, you know, insurgent campaign, if you're relatively, relatively new on the national political scene, I think you got to, you got to come with a lot more than what, than, than what she was perceived to come with, you know, and, and uh, at least with the impression that she gave on, on the national stage and the various debates and, and what TV time she got. And, and, uh, and again, there's just so many candidates that somebody, I mean, you know, I said about Beto long ago that I moved back to New York a little over a year ago, and the, one of my first memories was seeing a Beto O'Rourke poster in like a in like a, a, a townhouse, a, a brownstone apartment in downtown Brooklyn, and I just thought it was wild. But like, if you can go from that, from having that kind of reach to like wealthy people in New York City, and not be able to fund your campaign through the month of October, um, <laughs> then that I mean, but I think that has a lot that that talks about fundraising, but also talks about just how much, how many, how many different different candidates there are to spread your money around you know and there's a lot of people who could have been very energized about Kamala Harris three four months ago that are now just putting all their money into Elizabeth Warren or to any of the other number of candidates Pete Buttigieg uh, anybody and um and for you know whatever reason her can her candidacy just didn't kind of hold people's attention to the degree that it seemed like it might a couple of other quick notes on Friday Andrew Yang hosted something called Yangapalooza in Des Moines Iowa yeah. He was joined on stage, David, by Weezer's Rivers Cuomo. Uh, according <laughs> to Spins, Mark Hogan and Madison Bloom, uh, Cuomo played Buddy Holly, along with covers of TLC's No Scrubs and Toto's Africa. Meanwhile, meanwhile, a week ago, Jack White opened for Bernie Sanders in Detroit. Oh. Uh, White played a bunch of White Stripe songs and a Dylan cover. Per Rolling Stone, White said that he supports Sanders' promise to abolish the Electoral College because that quote is the reason we're in the mess we're in now. So who wins the presidential battle of the bands? Yang or Bernie Sanders? Oh, man. 
I mean, I'm a big Jack White fan, so, uh, you know, and I'm certainly more sympathetic to, to Bernie Sanders than Andrew Yang. So I'm going to, I would give him the, I mean, he, he wins the David Shoemaker primary, but man, Rivers Cuomo covering TLC's no scrubs to a crowd of Andrew <laughs> Yang supporters is so pitch perfect. It's so spot on that I, I you got to mm-hmm. kind of, I, th- I think that, I think that might be your winner. I think so. We talk about being on message during a presidential campaign. How on, I mean, that's as yes. on message as humanly possible. Yeah. There's just no way. I also came across this. Uh, we got a December Democratic debate, which is scheduled for Thursday, December 19th. Guess what? That's the same Thursday that Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker opens. Oh, my God. So I want to ask two questions. One, is there anyone under the age of 90 who works at the DNC? <laughs> and do you understand that we can't watch Warren and Bernie duel for the fate of the galaxy when we're watching Ray and Kylo duel for the fate of the galaxy? These cannot happen at the same time. But here's my actual question to you, David. Which candidate will have the most persuadable voters watching Star Wars instead of watching the debate? Right? So let's guarantee, let's just right off the bat, nobody that is voting for Joe Biden will also be at Star Wars Thursday night. There's like zero, there'll be close to zero people. But who um, will lose the most eyeballs, do you think, to the rise of Skywalker? Oh, man, it's hard. <sighs> that, that, that feels right. That does feel right. Um, quote David Shoemaker. But it's, <laughs> I just think. Who's going to lose? Okay, yeah. Who, who's going to be there? Okay, so you say not Biden. Um, no way. I, I, I assume like Bob Iger is a Joe Biden Democrat, but I, he'll probably be out there on opening night. Um, the, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel like Andrew Yang has his, his audience is probably like 99% Star Wars fans, but also like 99.9% people who will stay home to watch him in the debate. Weirdly. Um, yeah, he is not qualified for the debate. Either, <laughs> oh, he hasn't. So All right. Now, um, it's just the four front runners and Kamala at this point. Who's gonna? Who is it gonna be? I mean, I think Bernie Buttigieg- is a weird one. I mean, because there are a bunch of like Bernie. I seriously doubt Bernie is familiar with the Star Wars universe, but a lot of Bernie fans strike me as fans of the Star Wars universe. I be- I bet that Bernie's like campaign staff are huge Star Wars fans. They they see. I bet that. I mean, they seem pretty like rather like comparatively young and plugged in, and and you know clearly, and they're all nerdy if they're working for political campaigns. Um, I like Chris's idea, Buddha Judge. Thirty-seven years old. I mean, David, is that not in the zone of dads who are currently foisting Star Wars fandom on their kids? Oh, and I'm not. I'm not talking about anybody in specific specifically <laughs> here. Just as completely notional. I just yeah. This is just something. Something about that. Anyway, time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun oh, headline. No. All right. Friday's headline was all a gourd. All a gourd. Uh, listeners Ryan Scott and Jerry Shaw thought it should have been Gordian knots. Like the. Uh, wow. That's the, good. Yeah. Pretty good. Andrew Cutts uh, went with Gordian yacht. Uh, and Megan Maruko says it should have been pump king of the sea. Pump <laughs> king of the sea. Today's strain pun comes from Joseph Dorowski. The headline appeared in the British Medical Journal. Boy, that is a generic name. But he learned about it from CNN.com. Let me read you a little of the article about CNN, from CNN, I should say. 
A package of marijuana has been retrieved from the nose of a man oh, no. 18 years after he smuggled it into prison. According to the team who reported on it for the British Medical Journal, the man received drugs wrapped in a balloon from his girlfriend who was visiting him in prison. He placed the drugs in his right nostril in order to evade detection from the guards, but was later unable to retrieve the drugs after pushing the package deeper into the cavity. The man, quote, suffered chronic sinus infections and symptoms of nasal obstructions in the years following the incident. Over the next 18 years, the package developed into a rhinolith, a stone that forms around a foreign body oh in the nasal gosh. cavity. Ugh. That's all you get, David. What was the British Medical Journal strained pun headline? Wait, this is, so wait, just to be clear, this is the British Medical Journal's headline and not the CNN headline. That is correct. I don't know that it's not going to change what I'm thinking, but I, but I, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, the British medical journal style as well as, you know, yeah. Esquire from the sixties, David, come on. Oh man. So am I looking for a, a, a slang term for marijuana here? Is that, is that, is that a place to start? <laughs> is, is, this, is it going to be like a reefer madness joke here? Or are you or like more of like the, the weed pot? Jim, please, please cut the clip of slang term for marijuana for the end of this podcast. I cannot wait to see what you do with that. Yes, David, that is what you're looking for. Ganja. I was trying to think of the ones of my youth. Herb would be a um uh just remember chronic. this is, is a oh, medical chronic chronic is it the chronic mm -hmm. or uh chronic mm -hmm. chronic illness? Chronic Sorry. Uh, no. no. Uh a little more down just right down the middle here. Remember this is a this is a medical journal. No need to no need to get cute. Weed uh mm, even more down the middle. Dope pot. Uh mm. grass. Um, if I, what if I give you joint? Joint. Oh, oh, um, uh, oh, why can't I think of it? I feel like it's right. In the, uh, oh, it I tell you, gotta reach out and grab it. Um, mm, famous saying, maybe with uh, joint. Sorry, time's up, David. What is it? How do I not know this? A nose out of joint. Oh. You know, when you get your nose out yeah, of joint. Yeah, I know, I know. That doesn't bad. quite work. It should be kind of joint out of nose, right? But uh, yeah. a nose out of joint. That is the British Medical Journal strain pun headline. And he is David Shoemaker. And I am Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. God, We're back Friday terrible. bright and early with more lukewarm takes about the media. <laughs> and David will try to do a better job. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. like the actor that would play either John Wilkes Booth or Edgar Allan Poe in a reenactment scene for a History Channel documentary. <laughs> David? Yeah. Looks like Chris Hansen just asked him to take a seat. Uh, David? What are you doing? Looks like Sean Penn's stunt double from The Falcon and the Snowman. <laughs> See that movie to appreciate how real that Ooh, is. All right. David? Looks like he just ran down to the corner for a pack of smokes but didn't grab his wallet. <laughs> Indecisive, self-centered, and soft. What are you doing? David looks like Mike Tyson, Barbara Walters, Barry Diller, and Norman Mailer. Yeah. Who had been surprisingly a close friend of Roy Cohn. Wow. JFK Jr. still alive and living on an island. If they, if they like, if they warmed you up to him and then showed you a 10-second YouTube clip while you were like waiting in line for a hamburger, you'd be like, holy shit, this guy's, you know, Bobby Kennedy. Rolled up sleeves. Yeah. Standing in front of an endangered owl habitat. 
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But who will lose the most eyeballs, do you think? Work with your therapist or your, you know, higher being about, but... Uh, no, sir. No, sir. What are you doing? Uh-oh, uh-oh. Ooh, all right. The only way you get attention in this democratic field is by being more liberal. So am I looking for a, a, a slang term for marijuana here? Is that is that is that a place to start? <laughs> is, is, is it going to be like a repo?